Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Two attorneys from the firm's intellectual property department discuss how some of today's most important IP legal cases impact businesses and branding. Emily Holmes, who is of counsel at Brownstein, leverages her intellectual property experience to help clients develop, protect, and enforce their intellectual property rights in the United States and internationally. Litigator Carrie Lamont, an associate at the firm, works actively with clients to resolve complex business disputes and protect their valuable intellectual property, including high-profile brands. In their first podcast, Emily and Carrie discuss the implications of Yosemite National Park's embattled trademark on the real estate industry. Hi, I'm Carrie Lamont. I'm an associate at Brownstein, Hyatt Farber and Shrek, and I work in intellectual property enforcement and litigation matters primarily. And I am here with my colleague, Emily Holmes. Yes, and I'm an intellectual property of counsel here at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek. I focus mainly on brand management and brand strategy, I'm doing a lot of trademark work, copyright, trade secrets, and anything else that falls under the um, IP and brand umbrella. And so we're going to combine our collective experiences like we do often in our day-to-day practice and come to you with a trademark podcast series in which we are going to focus largely on trademark issues, as the title would suggest, but probably float maybe a little bit into other related intellectual property issues. Today, we are going to be talking to you about real estate issues and trademarks, two topics that often lawyers and clients don't put together. There is an ongoing dispute that people in the public might be aware of regarding Yosemite National Park and their trademarks. And so we're going to delve a little bit into that and then rely largely on Emily's expertise to guide us through kind of things to avoid to not get into the same scenario and things to think about um, when you're in the real estate world related to trademarks. Yes, that's right. As you'll see, this is a pretty dire cautionary tale. Um, so hopefully we can help future companies avoid these issues. Yeah, so we'll dive right into the uh, Yosemite dispute. So I'm sure everyone's aware of Yosemite National Park. They are embroiled in a trademark dispute that is ongoing in two different venues right now. Uh, and the primary person that they're in a dispute with, I guess to say, is their vendor. They have a longtime vendor of services at the park. And they, for almost 20 years, the vendor had contracted with the National Park Service to operate hotels and restaurants and retail outlets at the park itself. The contract between the vendor and the park was set to expire in early 2016. And so the National Park Service had solicited for new vendors and selected a common food and service vendor to be their new vendor. Let's just say trouble ensued. (laughs) So the vendor took the position that they needed to be compensated for a variety of things, including intellectual property rights, and asserted a trademark right in several marks, including the trademark Yosemite National Park. Now, it seems that unbeknownst to the National Park Service, 
the vendor had actually filed and obtained a trademark registration for Yosemite National Park and several other marks without their actual knowledge. So the vendor apparently had taken the position all along that the trademarks were theirs. It doesn't seem that the National Park Service is necessarily contesting that, although we'll get into that in a minute. So the National Park Service has responded um, and has asserted a claim of false association basically saying that any use by the vendor of Yosemite National Park and the related marks is harmful to the public because the public associates the name Yosemite National Park with the actual park, uh, and therefore there will be damage. They have a couple of other claims at issue that are related to that kind of argument. Emily and I were surprised to see this. The public has had a very visceral reaction. I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. Yeah, there seems to be a strong reaction to the fact that a private corporation could own names of this nature, Yosemite National Park, and even the lesser known Curry Village, Badger Pass, some of these other marks that anyone could own them. Um, has has been the backlash, and that's certainly been the case. There's a prominent uh, New York Times article that comes at it from that angle, and I think a lot of the commentary has been from that perspective. So maybe let's start there. Do you have a reaction as a trademark lawyer to a private entity owning a trademark for a national park? I mean, I think obviously we deal with these issues every day, so we're going to come at it differently from the general public, but the creator of a mark owns the mark unless it's otherwise assigned. And so if this vendor created these marks, then it's the owner. Now, should these marks have been assigned to the National Park Service and in that sense sort of held in trust for the American people? Probably. (laughs) If we had drafted the agreement, that's the way that it would have gone. But as a matter of law, that's just the way that it is. Yeah. And as I said earlier, I think I don't read the National Park Service to be really contesting straight ownership of the trademark. Their claims seem to be kind of dancing around the issue in a way that suggests to Emily and I that they don't feel very confident about what their trademark rights are. I think that's exactly right, which is interesting. I mean, they, they must have taken a deep dive into the contract, which we tried to pull but weren't able to get a publicly accessible version of it. And then in the facts surrounding the development of the marks, they must have concluded that, you know, it does look like the vendor developed them and presumably the contract is silent or unfavorable on this point. Otherwise, I would expect them to take a much more aggressive and and a different stance in how they've handled the proceeding. So assuming that there was a mistake, which I think we both feel pretty good about in the Yosemite uh, transaction with the vendor, what are some things that you would recommend if you're a real estate company or a real estate lawyer and thinking about IP issues? What are kind of just things we should all know? Right. So specifically with respect to situations such as this, there should definitely be a clause in the agreement stating that any trademarks or other intellectual property developed by the vendor will be owned by, uh, the, in this case, the National Park Service or the owner of the, the real estate in question. Um, you would also want to include, of course, a present assignment to assign any rights that may vest in the vendor to the proper owner, because really the vendor is providing these services, of course, on behalf of the property owner and not on their own behalf. So that should be a very 
reasonable negotiation point should definitely be included in the agreement. I think it's also nice to have a clause in these types of agreements that the vendor won't contest ownership or try to oppose or cancel any resulting applications or registrations. That's just always nice to point to if you do end up in a dispute like this. And then finally, there should be a license back to the vendor so that the vendor can use the IP in connection with promoting the restaurants, the hotels, whatever it is that they're doing as a part of their their job duties. So specifically with respect to this circumstance and situations like this, where you have a vendor that you've engaged to help you maybe develop IP or even just in this case to run restaurants and hotels and the like, that's what I would recommend we see in this type of agreement. Real estate issues generally, I think one of the other big topics that you and I carry up talked about a lot for our real estate clients is both, you know, how to select a good mark and how to protect it. Real estate can be tricky when it comes to trademarks because there is sort of a a predisposition in the industry to somewhat descriptive trademarks, something that really evokes the place in which the um, apartment complex or shopping mall or whatever is located. And there's a reason for a descriptive mark. It certainly conveys to consumers where your property is, what they might expect to find there. But those types of marks are very difficult to protect. Um, And so I think looking to a more distinctive name for your development is something to also consider in the real estate industry. And particularly, we often see names that are common in a similar geographic region, but not necessarily next door. So we'll have developers who will want to use you know, a a name that evokes, say, the Midwest. And that might be a very common name in the Midwest because all the reasons Emily just said, it's descriptive and you understand where it is. And then come to find out that someone wants to open a same development or apartment complex in the next town or, you know, across the street. That's, of course, worst case scenario. So we try to do some things and work with our clients on the front end to avoid that type of issue arising. Exactly. And so conducting clearance through a trademark attorney as early as possible in the name selection process is always what we recommend. Um, It really helps you know what's out there on the trademark register and what's out there at common law, what what unregistered rights may raise an infringement risk for you down the road. And unfortunately, a lot of times these types of developments get named and promoted for months, sometimes years in advance of seeking any protection or any legal counsel. And then you either have to walk back the mark um, and change it or live with whatever infringement risk or or weakness in the mark you may have going forward. Do you see the real estate industry sort of latching on to IP as more of a concept? It seems to me like, at least in hospitality and hotels, Mm -hmm. we see that trend where they seem to be recognizing more the value of having, in particular, I think, a trademark um, or two to cover their properties. But I don't know if we've seen that shift yet in the sort of more private development space. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely more sensitivity to these issues than there used to be. And people are focused on branding as they should be because these are very consumer-focused businesses. When you're a restaurant, when you're a hotel... You know, you're every bit as much of a consumer facing business as if you're selling a food product or, you know, wine or beer. Um, So it is important to have a distinctive brand. And I think companies are picking up on that more. At the same time, 
it frankly doesn't surprise me at all to see this Yosemite agreement that's likely silent on all IP issues. Mm-hmm. This is a significant contract, a long-term contract that um, is silent on all these issues. So I think that that's something that is pretty common and uh, something that should be looked out for if you're contracting anything that remotely involves IP. Yeah, and particularly one like this where they knew the contract was going to terminate and it appears to be silent as to termination issues. Yeah, and as you and I have discussed, Carrie, this comes up a lot in a lot of different contexts. There's a lot of focus on what happens at the beginning of the business relationship and during the business relationship and very little focus on what happens post-termination. So that's that's the case certainly with a vendor agreement that you know is going to terminate. It's also the case with, say, a joint venture. A lot of times joint ventures are involved in um, developing real estate properties. It all seems great at the beginning. Everyone's getting along really well. Oh, we'll jointly own the IP. Everything's going fine. And then something goes wrong and it's really difficult to parse out those rights um, and ensure that the, the development still can use the trademarks. So what do you think? Yosemite National Park, what's the fate? I mean, I do think that the false association claim is pretty strong, particularly with Yosemite National Park, of course. And even with some of these marks that are lesser known to me as someone who does not frequent the park, but are are pretty well known to that segment of the public that does spend a lot of time at Yosemite National Park. So I think that is a good claim. And I think they may well be successful, but obviously... It's it's a tough battle when they don't have that contractual language to rely upon. And these marks have already proceeded to registration and have been used and owned by this vendor for such a long period of time. I mean, I think the, the payment that uh, the vendor was originally requesting was $51 million. Um, in order to allow the new vendor to use the trademarks. And that's a high number. That's a difficult position to be put in um, because of a contract that was silent on some key issues. National Park Service did take it upon themselves at the time the contract terminated to change some of their own signage and try to preemptively uh, address some of these issues so that they weren't on the hook for an infringement risk, which I think was a smart thing to do. But as they said in one of their pleadings, I think it was almost $2 million to change some of that signage and to, to make the full change would be you know, a significant investment. So I'm, I'm kind of pulling for them. Um, they seem like the the white hat uh, in this battle, but the facts are tough. What do you think? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I want the National Park Service to prevail here because it feels like the right result, even though I think we both understand that it's not that simple. Right. Um, But it just, to me, I think it ends up being resolved over money like most disputes. Yeah, agreed. I think that's right. Well, so that's our podcast for today. Uh, Join us next time. We were going to be discussing craft beer and trademark issues related to that close to every uh, Colorado person's heart. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Emily. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.